This is Adam Barr. Welcome to the Organic Outreach Podcast. Together, we're learning how to influence our world and share our faith naturally. We do this by providing resources, leading cohorts, and equipping leaders through conferences and intensives. At Organic Outreach International, we believe every Christian plays a part in fulfilling the Great Commission, and this podcast can help you do that. Have you ever had a sneaking suspicion that someone or something was just too good to be true? If you did, what did you do about it? Did you ask questions? Did you search for answers? Or did you just sort of look the other way and think, if you give it some time, the truth will come out, but for now, don't rock the boat. <laughs> when it comes to our questions about God and life, a lot of people maintain a don't ask, don't tell policy. In other words, they just bury their questions and keep a smile on their face. Well, our guest today does not take that approach. Joshua Ryan Butler is a pastor, he's an author, he's a speaker who helps people take a look at their toughest questions. And what I have found in reading his work and listening to him and in speaking with him is that as he does that, he helps us come away seeing that these questions actually can lead us to love God even more and to realize that God is even better than we imagined. I'm excited to share this conversation with you, so give it a listen. Well, I'm here with Josh Butler. Josh, uh, thank you so much for taking time to be on the Organic Outreach Podcast, brother. Thanks. Great to be here. Yeah, I'm excited about uh, sharing your wisdom with our listeners, especially on the issue of, of, of the doctrine of eternal judgment, the doctrine of hell that we're going to be talking about today. It's a pretty big topic, and it's one that people don't want to think about very much. I know I'm going to be preaching on it in a couple of weeks, so um, I hope you don't mind if I steal your material, do you? Go for it. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> we're talking about the afterlife in my church setting, and uh, I know that I've, I've benefited a lot from hearing and reading uh, your material, brother. But uh, before we get there, just for people who might not know who you are, can you share a little bit about what's your ministry journey? Where are you, and, and kind of what is God doing uh, in your life right now as you, as you seek to minister in, the, in a church setting? Definitely, yeah. So I am a pastor at a church called Redemption here in the Phoenix area in Arizona. I'm in Tempe, Tempe, Arizona, kind of ASU, Arizona State University uh, campus area. Um, but the last 15 years, uh, we just moved here this year. So the last 15 years, I uh, was a pastor in Portland, Oregon, uh, where I was focused a bit more on outreach, kind of local ministries in the city, international partnerships overseas. And then uh, last July, we moved out here um, in a role that's a little more focused on uh, preaching, teaching, leadership development, things of that nature. Uh, and we've loved it. We love back home, loved here. Uh, but throughout, I think common denominator and all that has been, I love trying to help people who wrestle with some of the tough topics of the faith. I came to Christ in college. I was at the University of Oregon and immediately bombarded by friends like, how can you believe in a God who dot, 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 you know, your issue? And so from early on, a part of my journey was grappling with, okay, God, what, what do you, what does your word have to say about this? How can I grow? And uh, Jesus having a fuller understanding of who you are and what you've done. And, and, yeah. And all. Well, especially where you were. I mean, Portland, for, for those who don't know, Portland's a pretty secular city, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, in the you know, urban core, particularly where we were at, you know, just uh, I would say, um, you know, some places you have the challenge of just uh, everyone assumes you're a Christian. That's sort of the, you know, you get cultural street cred or points, sure. you know, Christian. Uh, Portland is a little more antagonistic towards the faith. And you have some other places that can be apathetic towards the faith. Like, oh, I don't really care. I'm going to do their own thing. Portland uh, could often be a little more hostile, you know, at least um, over the years where I was there, like, uh, saying you're a Christian could get you 
not just not street cred, but uh, <laughs> in the negative. <laughs> you start off. You start off in the hole. I actually, I recently, um, uh, actually, early on when we were doing our podcast last fall, I did an interview with um, Kevin Palau, and. And he was talking about the Portland setting and how, you know, the people here who don't believe know why they don't believe. Yes. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Kevin is great. He's, he's, he's awesome. It's been cool. We've worked together in the past and yeah, there is that sense of like, it's not just, ah, I don't believe it's like, no, I, I, I've, I've got my objections lined up and all ready to, to roll on why I don't believe. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, that's an incredible ministry experience. And it's one that I think we're probably going to have to get ready for, whether you're whether you're from Portland or not, I mean, I'm guessing that that kind of mentality is you guys are the leading edge of this thing, um, and and what we're going to be seeing in in other places soon. Yeah, definitely. It's uh, you know, I, I people are like, oh, has it been a big transition moving to Phoenix? And I'm like, well, you know, uh, on that front, it hasn't felt that different. I don't know if it's just because we're in the university climate area, you know, where there's maybe more of that, but yeah. Uh, but yeah, it hasn't necessarily felt like a Culture shock in that regard. So you f- you feel like you feel like that the same sort of thing is pervading in that area as well. Yeah, definitely. Fascinating, fascinating. Yeah, I mean the climate changed, but not the climate. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Humidity, humidity's changed, but not the uh, hostility necessarily. Yeah. Well, cool. So you, um, you know, I, I, I like to say there are a lot of people when they see an elephant in the room, they like to turn it into a coffee table. Uh, they just don't want to, they want to pretend it's not there. You don't have that problem. And my sense is you, you, you don't mind calling it out because you, you care about people and you want them to understand what, what scripture really says. I think for a lot of people, they, they get around some of these tough topics. And as you said in the title of your book, they think of them as skeletons in God's closet, something that we need to be afraid of and not talk about. Why is it that you feel like it's so important for the church to open up the closet and take a look? Yeah, well, part of it has just been in my own life, even they, these questions have been a catalyst for me gaining the greater confidence in the goodness of God, mm-hmm. uh, which is ironic to people are counterintuitive. But I, I think, you know, one of the reasons I wrote the book was I, I found a lot of people think fear that God's kind of hiding some skeletons in the closet. Yeah. These topics where if we were to really open up the closet doors, really to open up scripture and take a closer look, I think the fears we find God's not truly good and worthy of our trust. Um, so I think that can hinder us from actually having a fuller confidence in God and the gospel. Uh, but I found that's because we often have a caricature of what's actually going on in the biblical story. Mm-hmm. So one of the things I do is trying to offer some paradigm shifts that have helped me over the years. So I'm not necessarily the answer man who's got it all figured out, but yeah. he's to kind of reframe for me a, a healthier biblical historic understanding of what I believe the Bible teaches and what the church has historically taught that I, I think um, uh, doesn't get rid of these topics, but helps us see how they arise because of the goodness of God. Oh, that's good. It's the goodness of God through and through all the way down. Well, we, we sometimes, we, we let um, Sunday school faith face up against PhD unbelief and we get, we get confused. We don't realize that what, what we're rejecting isn't the actual faith. It's, it's a caricature of what's really there. And so you've talked in, in, I've heard you speak about the, the issue of these paradigm shifts that we need to make especially as it, it relates to the doctrine of hell, because um, I think anybody who's a serious person, anybody who, who genuinely sits there and reflects on the doctrine of hell, this idea that there's this place where people who don't believe in Jesus are going to spend eternity, that they're going to be conscience, conscious, that they're going to be experiencing some level of discomfort. I mean, I, I don't know any normal, rational person who doesn't look at that and say, 
that's terrible. I, I, yeah. I, I hate that thought. That, that breaks my heart. You've done a lot of thinking about this. Can you get, kind of guide us through some, what are some of the paradigm shifts that we need to have if we're going to hold on to the, the view of who God really is and what Scripture really does have to say? Definitely. Yeah, I'd say there's four key ones that have really helped me. The first is to go, uh, what is the storyline? What is the bigger story that the topic of health fits into? Uh, because I think the root issue is people tend to think that God's just vindictive and got this dark side just out to beat people up forever. You know, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. And that gets dismantled, I think, when we reframe first, reframe the topic within the broader biblical storyline. So uh, the caricature I think a lot of people have for the story is that uh, what I call earth now, heaven, hell later, you know? And so the caricature, right now I live on earth, one day I'm going to die. And when I die, God will either send me up to heaven or down to hell. Um, and there are a couple problems with that storyline, but uh, in that storyline, earth is now, heaven and hell are later. Heaven and hell don't really have any relation to our present experience on earth. Mm-hmm. Story. Also, earth has no real place in our eternal future with God. And I believe the biblical storyline confronts this and says, no, it's not earth now, heaven, hell later. It's the storyline where... Um, Heaven, God has created a good heavens and a good earth, uh, but they have been torn apart by the destructive power of sin, death, and hell. But because God is good, he is on a mission to reconcile heaven and earth, to bring back together what hell has torn apart. And so I think one way we can frame the good news of the gospel is that God is on a mission to reconcile heaven and earth. Uh, But in another way, we could say that same thing is that God is on a mission to get the hell out of earth. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. and not so much to get us the hell out of it. I think that's the character. You guys yeah, always, yeah. Oh, I'm just going to let it all burn and get you guys out. You know? Whereas the Bill Strong is, no, God is on a mission to get the hell out of us on earth. Like, we are the ones who have unleashed the destructive power of sin that rages like a wildfire in God's good world. Um, I love the book of James talks about the power of a tongue. The tongue, how our words can tear down people, can tear down our community, can tear down, can like burn down our lives. He uses the image of like a forest, how a great forest can be burned down by a simple spark. Because similarly, our words can unleash this rampant destruction. Mm-hmm. But I want to say, and when they do, they've been themselves set on fire by hell. And I think James is making the point that hell makes its way into the world through us, through our rebellion, through our sin, through our evil. Um, And so I think this speaks to both these massive, horrific things we see on big levels, like um, sex trafficking, genocide, war, things that like tear our world apart on these massive levels, but also on these very intimate levels, things like pride and lust and rage and greed, uh, the vices of the human heart, these things that we all struggle with. these are characteristic of the destructive nature of hell. Uh, you can think of the big things like wildfires tearing the world apart. You can think of the personal things um, in our heart, like the spark, like the sparks that set our world aflame live within us. But the good news of the gospel is that God's on a mission to heal our world and to reconcile uh, and, and set things right. And the question for us is, will we let him set us right? Uh, one of the ways I put in the book that as we stand before Jesus, his question is not, were you good enough to get in? His question is, will you let me heal you? you know, mm. it's, for the gospel, it's not like, hey, did you do enough? Did you try hard enough? You know, it, it's, it's really more, will we receive the reconciling grace and mercy of the God who's come for us in Christ, who wants to heal his world? and set it right and to reconcile heaven and earth from hell. So that's the first paradigm shift is, is the storyline. Okay. 
What's so so the the idea is that that God Himself is at work in this world right now, revealing in some ways He's revealing heaven to us uh, mm-hmm. through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yes. You, you, you look at the, the opening line of the of the Bible. We start off kind of in this garden. This idea of God's God's presence being very clearly uh, evident in the garden itself, and then at the end of the storyline, you see heaven returns to earth again. Yes. Um, as as you study the the storyline as well, it's so amazing how often Jesus speaks about preparing a place for us, mm-hmm. and yet when when we hear about hell or separation from God, it's spoken of as a place prepared for the devil and his angels. It's not. We're, we're, this is not this is not natural to us uh, in terms of God's creative and redemptive purposes. It's where yeah. we end up when we reject God's God's message of salvation. Definitely, I love Colossians one. Uh, Paul talks about how God was pleased to have all His fullness well in Jesus, and through Him to reconcile all things in heaven and all things on earth by making peace through His blood shed on the cross. That's a good one. <laughs> what I was saying there is like. Jesus is the Savior who reconciles heaven and earth. Uh, he brings peace to the war that we've waged on heaven. Uh, and even though that's the point of the cross, like what God is up to in and through the cross of Christ is the reconciliation of heaven and earth. Um, I think we would say implicitly to reconcile them from the power of hell. Right? Yeah, that's uh, good. So that's p- paradigm shift one is get the storyline right. Is, is that is that the right way to put it? Exactly. Yes. Okay. Number two. Number two, well, so the question becomes, all right, well, when God kicks the hell out of Earth, <laughs> you know, when God boots it, uh, where does it go? Uh, and I think th- this is actually the next, the next three shifts um, are, you know, I think for many people, we think that it goes to the underground torture chamber, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's deep down in the bowels of the Earth that God's created to kind of torture people forever. It's kind of like Guantanamo Bay in the belly of the Earth. Or something, right? And I think the picture that we have in um, the Gospel is – you know, the claim I explore in the book is that A, its location is not underground, B, its purpose is not torture, and C, its construction is not a chamber, as in the New Testament, the way the New Testament talks about hell. Um, and so starting with the, the the second one here, the location, the hell's location in the New Testament is not underground. It's it's what I would call outside the city. What okay. I mean is Jesus' primary word for Gehenna, or primary word for hell, uh, and the New Testament's primary word is the, the word Gehenna. And it can surprise a lot of people to know this was an actual physical place. It was a place just outside Jerusalem's walls, a valley uh, outside Jerusalem, the Valley of Hinnom. And it, it's, uh, I mean, this is a place you could Google Maps, you know, and, and go out and walk out into. Uh, and this place had a dark and destructive history in the Old Testament. I think knowing that Old Testament history helps us understand why Jesus is using this as this image for hell. Uh, this was a place associated with child sacrifice. And so the prophets, prophets like Jeremiah, and in the book of Chronicles, details of the kings, they would rail against this place as this place that became almost like a symbol of how wicked and corrupt the people of God had become. Uh, it was a place that symbolized the idolatry and injustice of God's people. This was where they would leave Jerusalem, they go outside the city, outside the walls, and sacrifice their children to other gods. Uh, and so um, for the prophets, this became like this symbol of the wickedness of the people of God and how bad things and corrupt things had become. But the good news was in the storyline that God was not going to abandon his city or his temple or his forever, that because God was a good king, he was going to come back to Jerusalem, come back to the temple. He was going to reestablish 
his kingdom from there as the capital. And he was going to kick the rebellion outside Jerusalem, outside the city walls, out into Gehenna, back to where it came from. And so this, this history helps shed a number of interesting angles, I think, on what, what's going on in the New Testament. The, the first is, um, you know, one is, yeah, Gehenna was a cruel place, uh, but it was cruel not because God was cruel. It was cruel because of the idols that there held sway, right? Like the, um, to blame the cruelty of Gehenna on God would have been, would be something like, like an alcoholic blaming sobriety for the pain of their affliction. A sobriety mm-hmm. is not the thing causing the affliction. You know, it's the cure of the alcoholic needs. And similarly, I think Gehenna speaks to um, God is the cure that what ails and afflicts Gehenna needs. And the pain and affliction of Gehenna, you know, like arises um, because of our rejection of and rebellion against God. That doesn't mean that God's not actively involved. You know, I, I think when we zoom out into the bigger picture of uh, divine agency, that, that God sustains us and, and has ordained the world in such a way that if you rebel against the reality of, you know, if you rebel against reality, then you'll dash yourself up against the rocks. Of the so much of, I mean, I think so much of people's understanding of sin and judgment is is corrupted or at least distorted because they fail to realize that sin is is its own punishment in many ways. I mean, sin. When you understand, sin isn't ultimately right. Sin is um, sin is acting against your your nature. It's acting against how you were created to be. It's it's like. It's like someone who, who who who's wearing a really bad pair of tennis shoes and just runs, 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 and finally, you know, develops a, a, a knee problem. Is the problem running it, or is it running against your nature? I mean, um, or or putting a, a diesel fuel in a in an unleaded only ga- gas tank. If the thing blows up, eventually that's going to be a that's going to be a problem. Sin at, the, at at its basic level is acting against our nature, and and it carries its own punishment. Yes, yeah, I think of sin as uh, like working against the grain of the universe and working against <laughs> our own humanity, you know, well, that's that, really good. Yeah. And when we do, uh, like you're saying, you know, like when we do work in the, I think we tend to think that sin makes us more human. Like, Hey, if we sin more, we'll have a greater life experience. It's a probably thing. But I think the biblical picture is sin actually makes us less human, not more. It, it degrades our humanity. It doesn't mean that people that sin are less dignity or whatever, you know, but it does mean that sin degrades our humanity. It actually cuts against the, design we're made for. Jesus being sinless doesn't mean that he was less human. Jesus was actually, he lived the most fully human life of everyone who's ever existed um, because he was sinless. Like being without sin, we see the fullness of true humanity in Christ. Well, yeah, I mean, sometimes we we look at some of the most degraded acts in history. You think of like the Holocaust or some of these things, and, and the only way you can describe it is is unhuman. I mean, this this is this is totally anti-human. These kinds of behaviors, and yet, many of the people who were carrying these out were very rational, very uh, you know scientific people at at the time, and and yet because they had turned their humanity away from the source of true humanity, the Lord, they used their brilliance to do the worst worst acts in history. Yes. Yeah. Well, and then big picture too, when we see this Gehenna storyline, I think we see it's it's not so much a story of good folks go up, bad folks go down, right. as it is center and periphery. It's God coming to reestablish his kingdom at the center of the world and all of that stuff that stands unrepentantly opposed to his kingdom and people who refuse to repent and align themselves against God, uh, that getting pushed from the center uh, to the periphery where they can no longer 
harm or destroy. And when we see that, that actually strikes me as uh, that is like the dominant narrative at work in a lot of our fairy tales and the deepest, like the stories of our world that our hearts yeah. are contracting, the story of the good king who returns and comes back and um, puts an end to uh, the you know destruction that's running rampant in the land, reestablishes peace and order, and those who uh, aligned against it get pushed out to the periphery where they can no longer hurt or destroy. Or even in other forms, you know, I think of like uh, Cinderella. You know, when uh, <laughs> you know, when at the end of the story, we're all excited when the prince puts on the slipper, the shoe, and you know, they get together, and we're not bummed that the three wicked stepsisters who've been fighting against that ending, you know, the whole storyline through, like it goes slinking off into the distance where they can no longer interfere with the destiny of the story. You, know? you must have daughters. I, I've got four boys. So I don't know the Cinderella thing. <laughs> So, uh, and, and it, it's funny too, when I read, you know, st- some of the stories to my daughter, like when the king comes back into the city and establishes his peace, and I use an example of a fairy tale in the book, but where, um, you know, the the corrupt governor from before is trying to work out a compromise or do, hey, just let us run our kind of mafia racket here. We'll cut you in on that deal. And everything my daughter streams out, like, no, don't compromise with evil. Don't compromise with the bad powers. The metaphor is don't compromise with hell. Like we don't want God to compromise with the power of hell when he reestablishes his kingdom. Um, yeah, because we actually, if we really want redemption and restoration, it means some of the junk's got to get dealt with. You know, like it, so. So the second paradigm is that God. It's not. It's not like hell is is some underground place. Um, it's where, that God you know casts us into. It's that hell is the out. It's it's pushing. It's pushing evil and sin outside the boundaries of God's good reestablished kingdom on earth. Yes, which I think is also the picture we see Revelation twenty one twenty two at the end. Yeah, Jerusalem, the city of God, the kingdom of God, uh, but wickedness gets pushed outside and is unable to come in. Awesome. Number three, give us number three. Yes, the third one is uh, if we look at the storyline, the hell it's into. We've looked at the location of where hell is. And then the, the third one is looking at the purpose. What is the purpose of hell? And uh, here I want to say it's not torture. The caricature is torture. The biblical picture is that it's protection, and it's protection through containment, that God's purpose is to protect his kingdom, um, and he protects his kingdom, uh, the peace of his kingdom, the flourishing of his kingdom, by containing the power of unrepentant sin and, and unrepentant rebels who impenitent rebels who refuse to align themselves with the way of ways of his kingdom to receive mercy and be made fit for his kingdom. So here I think of, um, you know, there's these passages in the old Testament, like Isaiah, I, mean, I, I don't have the specific uh, passage number for me, but Isaiah, one of my favorite verses is where God says, Hey, on that day, basically on that day, when I established my kingdom, um, he says, no longer will they, will they harm or destroy on all my holy mountain." for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord. Yeah. And picture there, the holy mountain, it's Mount Zion, Jerusalem. This guy going, I'm going to come back to my capital. Jerusalem, Israel is kind of seen as like the capital of God's kingdom reign into the world in the Old Testament. So the picture there is one of God going, I'm going to return to my city. I'm going to establish my kingdom into the world from there. And when they do, those forces that are currently hurting and destroying and causing wreckage and carnage and disaster around the world, they'll no longer be able to do so. Why? Well, because the earth will be now be filled with the glory and the goodness of God. 
kingdom. So it's a picture of God protecting, when God establishes his kingdom and protecting it from those forces that hurt and destroy by containing them outside. I love that. Oh, go ahead. No, I was just, so I was going to ask, I mean, I, uh, First of all, I, I agree with a lot of what you're saying, but I think for some people, they'd, they'd at the, the natural question or pushback on what you're saying is, okay, well, there seem to be some texts, I mean, I don't need to go through them because I know you've gone through them all, it, that, that, that attribute to hell a punitive yes. feature. I mean, it's not, it's not just like, oh, let's protect the good people. There is something of, of a sense of there's judgment, there's justice, and there's punishment that's yeah. bound into the nature of hell. Am I right about that? I mean, are you saying that that's not the case? No, great question. So uh, we'll hear one quick other others, uh, and I want to address that as well for sure. Um, in Zechariah, it's where uh, God says, again, like, I'm going to establish my kingdom on the day Jerusalem will be a city without walls uh, because of the great number of people and animals inside. And you kind of go, that's kind of a wild image to me, a funny, like God's yep. like, dude, I'm going to bring everyone in. I'm going to knock down the walls so as many people want to come in can come in, you know? Um, but back in the day, if you lived back then, people would have been like, well, that's great, God, you want to knock down the walls, but the walls are kind of what keep the bad guys out, you know, the enemies yep. that hurt and destroy. So what are you going to do about that? And God goes on to say, uh, I myself will be a wall of fire around the city and I will be its glory within, which really <laughs> strikes me in that I see God going, um, you know, God protects his kingdom, not with tanks and jet fighters and AK-47s. He protects it with his very presence. And it's interesting to me that God's presence, you know, presence is experienced as glory within the kingdom, uh, but it's experienced as protective fire outside. Oh, yeah. protects evil, unrepentant, impenitent rebels and unrepentant evil from getting in. And so I think we see this narrative picture of God establishing his kingdom, protecting it and containing impenitent rebels and all outside. Um, but then the question comes up, you mentioned great question, that it's also punishment. Um, and we see punitive language. And I, some people have, you know, would ask the question like, so are you saying it's not punishment? I would say, no, I want to say, it is punishment. The containment is the punishment. I think it's the picture that we have where um, if you think about like in our uh, justice system, for example, uh, today, if someone's accused of a crime, they're found guilty and the judge hands down their sentence and they go, uh, Hey, you're sentenced to your punishment is you're being sentenced to 10 years in prison. I'll say, right. Um, well, I think sometimes the challenge we have is when we think of hell, we think of, if it's punishment, then it's got to be like torture. Right? It has to be mm-hmm. uh, devils poking you with spears and someone whipping you and that, that kind of thing, right? Right. Um, but, and that's where I think a lot of the vindictive imagery looks at. But in our own society, we see like the containment is the punishment. Like mm-hmm. when you're to 10 years in prison, um, we'd see it as maybe cruel or inhumane if people were getting poked and prodded with spears and burned alive. Although, but we don't see it as... Um, not being punishment simply because it's it's containment. And I think in the biblical vision as well, that there's this picture of God's containment uh, of us in our corrupted state uh, and our hardened heart and our resistance re- or re- refusal or rebellion against God and his mercy um, is God's punishment is his excluding of us from the kingdom and containing us in our rebellion, so to speak. But then some people, I think, you know, another question that's related that can come up is like, well, are you just trying to soften? Are you trying to soft pedal? What I was, I say, no, I, uh, in, in some ways I'm trying to elevate it, if you will. Um, I love, I remember hearing, uh, 
Tim Keller once say to the effect, he was asked like, hey, do you think the flames of hell, are they metaphorical or are they li- real, you know, literal? And he said something to the effect of like, oh, I think they're a metaphor, you know, and, and uh, the person, he says, often when I say that, people will kind of wipe the sweat off their brow and say, oh, you know, thank goodness, it's not that bad. Or, and then he'll follow it up and say, I think they're a metaphor for something much worse. <laughs> and then, yeah. Well, that's, and, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, just to wrap that thought up is that, um, and that's kind of the point I want to, it's not to say that hell isn't that bad. In some ways, it's actually to say it's worse, but it's to hopefully properly locate where the badness of it comes from, that it's from the corrupted nature of our condition and our evil and our affections that have been corrupted against God, our rebellion against him. And it's God's goodness that motivates his sustaining of us, even mm-hmm. if it's rebellion and his containment of us so that our rebellion can only go so far in terms of how, you know, how much damage it can cause. And uh, it's God's goodness all the way through, but it's Rather than soft pedaling, I think it should actually make us more, oh my gosh, the junk in my heart, I've actually got to do some serious dealing with before God. Well, that's 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 what so much of what God gives us at the, I, I love C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity when he talks about things at the biological level, and then things at the psychological level, and then things at the spiritual level. And what he, what he helps you see is that these things at the biological level um, are are they they help point to something that's more acute at the psychological level. I mean, anybody who's banged a, a, a hum, a, their thumb with a hammer, yeah, that hurts. But anybody who's ever had someone betray them, that hurts mm-hmm. in a totally different, more lasting way. And then at the spiritual level, there's there's an even a greater uh, a greater expression of that. And that, what I hear you saying is, is that the metaphorical language that we see in different places isn't a denial of the pain or the reality of these things. It's it's the it's the best we can do, right? So human biological death, that's that's bad, right? I mean, we think of that as the worst thing that can happen. Yeah. But it's just a metaphor for spiritual death that we yeah. experience in separation from God. Am I right? Totally, yeah. And I you know, I think one of the key images there's there's three key images that the Bible uses uh for hell. I think you know it's fire, darkness, weeping, and gnashing of teeth. Um, but the fire one is the one most people have in mind, you know, and, and and when you think about what is fire and what is a metaphor for, uh, it fire destroys, like it burns up, it tears down, it doesn't it doesn't build up, it, it tears down in that sense. And uh, you see fire imagery used in a quite a number of different ways in scripture, but two prominent ones. One is for the destructive power of our sin, like how mm-hmm. it our life, like, and even our, on the level of our desires, like our desires are like flame. So they, can, they burn us, right? They burn within uh, us. They burn it and they leave us in the ashes. This is burning down our relationships, burning down our uh, health, our lives, our community, all those, those kind of things. And the other is, um, you know, from the other angle, it's God's judgment on our idols. Like God burns down Babylon with fire. God actually uh, judges and the things that we've invested our lives in that don't last, that are not <laughs> of him or from him, you know, like, or things that we take from him and, and corrupt in the sense, you know, like, uh, I think there's the a dump. Vision. Yeah. Yeah. God burning up the idols that we've given our lives to you. And all we're left with is the ashes that remain. <sighs> well, that, that brings us through number three. We, yeah. uh, our time is quickly escaping us, Joshua. Yeah. How about number four? I'll try to do a lot. The fourth one, really quick. Uh, the fourth one is: uh, is it a chamber? You know, and um, and and I want to say no. But here's what I mean by that. I think the question of is it a chamber. The caricature I think some people have is that 
we are, you know, people are in hell and they're going, God, I'm so sorry. I'll do anything. I just want to be with you. Please forgive me. And God's like, too bad, too late. I don't want to. Doors are locked. Yeah. And kind of that image of the doors are locked from the outside. And it's a strange reversal of the gospel where we want God and we're pursuing him, but he's unwilling to be found. And the gospel actually reverses that. Like it goes, no, we're the ones running from God and God's going all the way to hell and back, like at the cross, like God, the Mm -hmm. distance. God is willing to go with be with that. <laughs> the problem, I think, in the in the biblical storyline is that one of the key images used often is the hardness of heart, that we harden our hearts against God, against his pursuit of us. And when we reject God and we rebel against him, when God comes after us and we continually push him away, there's this image there, the hardening of the heart, that we are becoming more and more almost like encased in our sin uh, I think the hardening of the heart in this life, it's a sense that we are locking the door slowly and surely and gradually and concretely pushing against the God who hmm. come for us in Christ. And so hmm. in that respect, I think that um, the the nature of health construction, so to speak, is that it's constructed in and through our rebellion against God, like our corrupted affections that uh, refuse the mercy that he has freely offered in Christ. So the doors are locked on the inside. I mean, if, if, if you can use the door imaging. Totally. Yeah. The doors of ACS Lewis said kind of famously, the doors of hell are locked on the inside. Yes. And, and that doesn't mean that God's just passive. Like he's going, Oh, I'm going to get in, but it's too bad. You won't let me, you know, there, yeah. is, there is this angle to it where, you know, um, God is actively, God actively calls out our rebellion at judgment. He calls out the condition of our heart and he deals with it appropriately, um, sustains us in that condition. So it, God is sovereignly involved in all this, but the root issue is not that we want out and God's saying too bad. Uh, the root issue is that we don't want God. <laughs> oh man. Wow. Uh, we prefer our own autonomy rather than life in and with and like Romans one says, I mean, we uh, we 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 choose the uh, the creature rather than the creator. Uh, Jeremiah talks about, you know, God says, "My people have done two crazy things: they've rejected me, the fountain yeah. of living water, and they've chosen cisterns for themselves." So, Josh, I I just want to, um, you know, we, we we listen to this, and I think anybody who listens and thinks in some way that the doctrine of hell has been soft peddled or we've tried to avoid the horror of it, you haven't listened closely enough. And I would encourage someone to read your book, Skeletons in God's Closet, because I think it's really clear we're not trying to lessen the reality of this. We're, if anything, we're trying to really fine tune it and help people grasp it even more clearly. How does this? This is the last question I, we have time for, but I just want to know how how. When you really, I mean, you've had to spend time thinking about this, reading about this, contemplating about this, praying about this. I mean, this this doctrine, if anything, it brings you to a place of just devastating compassion for people. I mean, how how does this move you in your ministry? And, and why should believers who want to actually make a kingdom difference in this world, why do we need to contemplate this teaching of the scriptures even more? How will it help us? How will it move us? How will it motivate us? Yeah, few reasons. One is, I'd say, even if you don't wrestle with this topic, chances are your friends or family members do. You know, there are people in your life who do. Um, for me, man, I, my background, you know, come to faith, come back to my college dorm room, I'm telling my roommate, hey, you never believe how good God is. He's just so awesome, amazing, everything he's done. And when I was done, my roommate's first response back was, 
So do you think I'm going to hell now? <laughs> I was like, I didn't even bring that up. I wasn't even on my radar. I just kept it. Uh, but I found often for many of us, it may not be something we wrestle with. We have friends, family members, people we're in proximity to. And so being able to help those who struggle with it, being able to um, communicate the gospel well with people that have questions. It doesn't mean I think we need to pretend to be able to answer, man. We got, you know, we got everything figured out, but it does mean that um, we can help clear up some misperceptions or caricatures and hopefully communicate uh, something that's more biblically, uh, theologically accurate. Um, The second reason is I just say for our own journey, uh, on the one hand, if this is a part of the biblical story and we want to grow and be shaped by God's story for the world, then it's probably important that we press into it. Um, and the other hand is going in my own life. Again, I found a greater confidence in God's goodness having pressed on these topics because you kind of walk out going, Oh man, if I can encounter the goodness of God in the hardest parts of the story, yeah. I have a lot more of that foundational confidence in the rest of life with God. Oh, that's good. That's good. That's really good. I appreciate it, brother. Thank you so much for taking time to talk with us and um, and share this with us. I, I I said it already. I would encourage people to to pick up your your book, The Skeletons in God's Closet. And you've got another book uh, by the title. Fill in the blank for me. Yeah, the pursuing God. Yeah, which in many ways kind of is is the basis of what you were just talking about with the gospel. That God God is is chasing after us. So I'd encourage you if you're a listener today to pick up. The Pursuing God and the Skeletons in God's Closet by Joshua Ryan Butler. Josh, thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks, Adam. Have a great day. Yeah, you too. Well, I hope you enjoyed listening to that conversation as much as I did recording it. I'd really encourage you, dive deeper by picking up some of the resources that Joshua has been part of writing. He has a couple great books. The Skeletons in God's Closet The subtitle of that is amazing. The Mercy of Hell, The Surprise of Judgment, and The Hope of Holy War. Check that book out. Again, The Skeletons in God's Closet. Also, The Pursuing God, A Reckless, Irrational, Obsessed Love That's Dying to Bring Us Home. Both of these books will have a major impact on your thinking and on how you feel about God. So I'd encourage you to pick them up. You can pick up a copy from your preferred bookseller. Also, one more thing, just want to let you know about some upcoming organic outreach events in May and June. May 21st, we're going to be in Tyler, Texas at Tyler Christian Fellowship. You can get some training in organic outreach for churches. On May 30th, we're going to be in Elmhurst, Illinois at Elmhurst Christian Reformed Church, also with some training there. We're going to be doing an intensive on May 30th and 31st in Orange County, California at Generations Church. And finally, big event coming up in June, the 25th and 26th, we're going to be in Wheaton, Illinois at Wheaton College for the annual Amplify Conference. Check out the website for all uh, these events and for more information about them and also to register. You can register for any one of these events. It's a great way to take the next step as you look at making your organization and your life more organic in its outreach. All right. For now, this is Adam Barr reminding you, make time to share God's life today. Today.